Welcome to Hustle Up's The Big Break, where we talk to showrunners, directors, executives, and other talented people working in the entertainment industry about how they got their start and what they've done to fast forward their creative careers. I'm H. Schuster, the founder and CEO of Hustle Up, a professional network that connects creative talent with each other and with the entertainment companies that need to staff them. And today, I'm breaking it down with Erica Shelton-Kaddish, an incredibly talented writer, producer, and TV showrunner. Erica's worked on The Equalizer with Queen Latifah, The Good Wife, and Being Mary Jane, among other hit shows. Join us for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Erica Shelton Cottage most recently served as consulting producer on the CBS hit drama The Equalizer, starring Queen Latifah. Previously, Erica was the executive producer and showrunner on seasons four and five of the BET series Being Mary Jane, starring Gabrielle Union. And Erica served as co executive producer on the critically acclaimed and one of my favorite CBS series The Good Wife, starring Emmy winner Juliana Margulies. Uh, her career began uh, in, uh, on the Jerry Bruckheimer series CSI New York, and after that, Erica went on to write and produce many hit shows, including Close to Home. Cold Case, Hawthorne, Covert Affairs, uh, and FBI, among others. Erica has also developed projects for Universal TV and CBS Studios under multi-year overall deals. Um, Erica's won numerous awards and accolades, including the Courtney and Stephen J. Ross Fellowship at USC and the Fox Writers Initiative Fellowship. She was also named one of Variety's 10 Writers to Watch and has been featured in the Route 100's annual ranking of the most influential African-American leaders. Welcome, Erica. We met years ago through our mutual friend Sarah Goldfinger, probably at one of her epic uh, New York New Year's Eve parties. Um, and Sarah was one of the first guests we had on the podcast, so I'm super excited to talk to you today. I actually wanted to start with just the fact that you've built this amazing career on um, a lot of procedural and crime-oriented uh, dramas. What do you love about that genre? How did First of all, how did you kind of find your way to it? And then, you know, you've continued to write uh, in, in that genre. What do you love about it? Um, I, that's very interesting. It's an interesting question because I didn't start off wanting to become a procedural writer and write these cop shows and that sort of thing. In fact, my dream job at the time that I was trying to break in was um, Joan of Arcadia was the show that I had desperately wanted to write for. That, that was probably back in the days when you actually did a spec script for a show. Did you write a spec script for Joan of Arcadia? I didn't. And here's here's why. Because that was uh, the time where television was really starting to change. And um, shows like Joan of Arcadia were sort of going away. And the industry was sort of pivoting to yeah. cop shows, anti-heroes, uh, that sort of thing. So because I wanted and needed a job, I sort of pivoted with it. And I think yeah. one of the um, the first shows that I really got into was The Shield. And I loved this anti-hero um, and Vic Mackey was the character, he was the cop that um was very controversial and so my first spec script that got attention was uh, a shield spec and so um i just loved the fact that particularly the shows that had at least some room to see the other side of not just the cops mm -hmm. but also this quote unquote bad guys and if we had some semblance of being able to get 
see the layers of the criminal element was very interesting to me too because ultimately i felt like with joan of arcadia sort of looked at the human condition and was really about um diving into the relationships and that sort of thing but with these cop shows particularly when you got an op opportunity to really look at the characters there was also this opportunity to kind of look at the human element not with all yeah. of the shows some of it was just a sort of crime and punishment kind of thing but um those were the ones that really got me excited and that's particularly why the shield was very influential it's really interesting. I mean, that begs the question, right? Where do you think procedural and crime dramas evolve to next? A lot of the shows you've worked on are very character driven, right? The Good Wife and 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 um, and and the Equalizer have a lot of character development in them, right? They're they're not quite the sort of um, uh, as procedural as maybe like a Dick Wolf show, who who by the way, I, I think recently uh, he just re-upped his overall deal with nine shows on the air. So procedurals are not going anywhere. Um, but where do you think they evolve to next? Um, it's very interesting because I feel like we, the pendulum sort of swung and we moved away from series like The Shield, particularly in broadcast, mm -hmm. and it became much more sort of of the strict procedural model where it was just about the case and very little character. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like The Good Wife was a bit of an outlier because it did have some really meaty character elements to it. And it was not all just about the legal case in that instance. Um, but because of the need for ratings and that sort of thing, and mm -hmm. to have people coming back, felt like the networks in particular sort of just stayed in that lane of procedural, strictly strict procedurals, a good example with Dick Wolf with his nine shows, and left the more character-based stories to the streamers and cable. Interesting. Where do you think network is headed? I mean, you've you've done a lot of network shows, right? Um, where where do you think um, the is? It's interesting. You're kind of saying, you know, network procedurals are going in one direction, and maybe the kinds of crime shows on Netflix and the streamers is going in a different direction. Is that is that sort of what you're seeing in a lot of the development? Yeah, it's very interesting because at least what I'm hearing now is that a number of the streamers are actually moving closer to where the broadcast networks were, where <laughs> it all um, comes full circle. <laughs> exactly. It all comes full circle. It's very interesting development in the evolution of television dramas, whereas I, as I said before, the streamers seem to deal with these deeply character-driven stories and left the strict procedurals to the broadcast networks. And now I'm seeing uh, a movement towards the streamers being having an interest in procedurals. Yeah. And 
well, they can't ignore the ratings, right? Audience. They can't ignore the numbers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's, 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 you know, yeah. the, the thing you can say about CBS shows is that, um, you know, people want to say, well, they skew older, they skew this or they skew that, but they, they also build hits, right? They, they build hits that, um, a lot of people show up to watch. And I think, uh, as we look at the streamers, you know, struggling with subscription and, uh, and churn and all the things that wall street is unhappy about, they, they need some big tent shows. They can't keep, uh, programming to the micro demographics that Netflix was really proud of a few years ago, right? They're looking for shows that are, uh, as, as gets said in the business four quadrant shows, right? Exactly. Exactly. And procedurals do that. They give you, um, those four quadrants, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so it makes a lot of sense and, and that, so I'm hoping that we evolve to a place where we can find a happy medium where mm -hmm. cause the sweet spot for me is having those procedural elements, but then also having some character based, um, storytelling as well mixed in. So, um, hopefully that's, where we're going in the future. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of those shows. You worked with Queen Latifah on The Equalizer. Um, Deborah Martin Chase uh, is, is a legend in the business. Um, tell us what it was like working on that show and, and how you kind of came to be a consulting producer on the show. I was under an overall deal at Universal and The Equalizer is a co-production between CBS and Universal. And um, it's interesting because that show, the writing uh, writer's room came together in May of 2020, which was a tumultuous time. That's Very, when the writer's yeah. room opened. And um, it was during the pandemic, pre-vaccines. Um, yeah. As you'll remember there was a lot of uh, racial unrest that summer sure and was, yeah. we were all locked in our homes so um the room was all on zoom and that was my first time being in a in a room as for for most people that was just strictly on zoom yeah uh, i didn't actually meet the writing staff until a year later but i was initially a little wary that's so crazy you were on zoom with these people for a year the your 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 team members for a year and didn't meet them in person i think you know even we're not that far away from the lockdown or quarantine but i think we still all struggle to remember what that was like like for me it almost feels like yeah i don't really remember being locked it was like going back and forth between like zoom and being locked in my house and a black lives matter protest like that was that was a, a, a you know the, the time when i like actually dared to leave the house i was like okay that's worth it i'm gonna leave the house right like uh it, it was a really strange time yeah. and so it's a strange way to develop a show because normally, and, and you know, you came from CSI where this was certainly the case, you're all in a room together breaking a story on a whiteboard, right? Or on a, on a, on a you know, with, with note cards or whatever it is. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I was wary about our ability to create a creative environment and kind of the teamwork that's needed. Television is extremely collaborative. And so I was uncertain if we were going to be able to have that same camaraderie that you have in a functioning writer's room. And I was pleasantly surprised because I did feel like we were able to get to know one another, to um, recognize each other's strengths 
and really build stories in a pretty efficient way. We spent a great deal of time on Zoom. We were, for the most part, on Zoom from 10.30 to 5.30 with like an hour break. Right. You, you were like the platinum lunch, gold members of and, Zoom. You kept them You kept them afloat for, for, for several exactly, years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If they, if they did um, mileage rewards on Zoom, right. we would have won. So, because <laughs> um, we spent a lot of hours uh, on there. And I think ultimately it was tough. It was tiring. It was... Um, you're dealing with the um, uh, trials of parenting, you know, with kids uh, also on Zoom and school yep. and things like that. So it was not particularly easy, but I feel like in the, for the most part, we were able to do it and yeah. um, create a, pro a product that audiences responded to. So which was, for sure. I was really happy about. And, and, and how would, like, how did you work with the, was, was Deborah in the room with you guys? Um, or were, were you guys in the room on your own? Like how involved was she in the project? Like what was sort of the, the, uh, the, the, the process? Typically the producers, the non-writing producers are not in the room. And that was definitely the case with this. She did pop in and meet us and say hello and that yeah. sort of thing. But, um, we were all left to um, ourselves, left alone, the writers to figure out the stories, figure out the show. Um, and um, it, it worked out in, in the end. Um, but it was with each first year show, there's always a bit of a learning curve. Even though you have the benefit of the pilot, there's still so much to sort of figure out, um, yeah. but we were able to do it in amongst challenging times and circumstances. Well, it's interesting. You talked about, you know, the fact that it was a first year show and, and you were a consulting producer on that show, which is a little bit different than being an EP or a co-EP. And maybe you can kind of describe for our, our listeners what it means to be a consulting producer as opposed to, um, you know, a, a, a producer maybe that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, an EP, co-EP supervising, et cetera. Yeah. One of my pet peeves about the industry is the, the titles, the misnomers yeah. um, <laughs> with the titles, because um, consulting producer, in my, in, in my case, it meant that um, I was only there for the most part for about three days a week. And then the other two days I was working on development, uh, on right. development because it was part of your overall deal. Exactly. But because of the actual duties of a, a consulting producer, it, it's really it's really no different than any other producer or writer on the show. You're doing the exact same job. You're yeah. in the writer's room helping to break stories. You are um, writing scripts writing outlines, you're doing all the same things. And then once uh, the episode starts shooting, you actually are there on set and you're in the pre-production meetings and all that sort of thing. So the, the responsibilities are really no different. Um, and 
a lot of times when you hear a consulting producer, you think, oh, you just pop in and listen and maybe offer some advice. And it's much more hands-on and um, you're just another writer with a fancy title. <laughs> no, that's a great point. And, and, you know, it's interesting because that was season one of the show and you guys were really figuring it out from the ground up. I'm curious then, you know, you were the showrunner on Being Mary Jane, a BET show that really got revamped in seasons four and five when you came in as the showrunner. Tell us what it's like to come into a show, you know, later in the run and, and start to, you know, sort of uh, make changes and, and kind of, um, you know, take over the helm, as it were. Yeah, that was an interesting experience because the show, as you mentioned, had been on for several seasons and BET was looking to sort of revamp it. Yeah. So it required sort of writing a pilot on the fly um, <laughs> in rather than going through the development process, you're kind of picking up with this character that already exists and right. then creating a new story. Um, making major changes, but also being very mindful of the fact that you don't want to alienate the loyal fan base. Right. Um, so it was, it was a really challenging exercise, and I was yeah. fortunate to have a great writing staff to sort of help because uh, we didn't have a lot of time. And mm -hmm. once they gave the project the green light. Mm -hmm it was we were off to the races and so we had to sort of write a i had to write a pilot essentially um within a just a few weeks rather than taking months to sort of develop it and figure out where the character is and where you want them to go and that sort of thing so the the writing staff uh came came from the first three seasons they had been with the show in its previous incarnation or were there new folks in the room as well? There were new folks, new folks in the room, in the room. And, um, yeah. because I hired a staff, um, and, uh, particularly because it had been, uh, quite a large amount of time between the end of the last season or the previous season of, being Mary Jane to the start of the season four and five. So yeah. this was a whole new staff that I put together and um, we were kind of learning the show and um, together. Really interesting, a really interesting challenge. You said, I, I, I interrupted you, you started to say it was, it was a good kind of challenge. I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, I learned a lot. Um, it's... <laughs> Having to do, to write a pilot in that amount of time um, or a premiere episode in that amount of time where you're making major changes was um, very challenging, but I learned a lot in terms of working with the staff and um, breaking the story and kind of launching a series in a way. Yeah. that I probably wouldn't have gotten had I gone through just the traditional sort of development process of developing a story on my own for several months and then yeah. um, getting a green light to yeah. shoot it and that kind of thing. So, 
It's really interesting, right? You kind of exercise these different muscles um, that are are useful probably to to just, um, you know, I think this business loves to pigeonhole people. And we also, you know, have an ability to get into sort of like a a, a zone where, you know, we we do the same thing and, you know, we do it on multiple shows, we do it the same way. And so it's nice to sort of have um, a different, a different set of challenges, I think. Um, You've also developed your own projects under several overall deals that you've had. I know one project, one pilot that you co-wrote for CBS was with uh, Robert De Niro's Tribeca Productions. Tell us a little bit about that because it sounds like it was based on a real life story. I'm curious uh, how that project came to you and what it was like to kind of write something that was based on something in the real world. Yeah. That every I feel like every writer has um, a heartbreaking story of a project that they loved so much that for numerous reasons did not go forward. And um, True Conviction, which I wrote with Angel Dean Lopez, was one of those projects. It was based on a documentary uh, of the same name, True Conviction, that was about three... uh, uh, ex-felons who had been exonerated on Mm -hmm. um, uh, two of them were murder charges, uh, a rape charge, um, and they were completely innocent, and it took decades for them to be free. And DNA evidence, right? It was was DNA that that ultimately exonerated them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and even, um, so the documentary is is fantastic, and it, it tells their story and, and just the hurdles that they had to go through in order to um, get yeah. their names cleared. But what was particularly interesting and what we tried to mine, Angel and I tried to mine in the pilot script was they had spent many of their formative years in prison and then they were let go. And they had to rebuild their lives and yeah. Un- try and understand the world which had changed so much um yeah. one of the stories that they uh one of the men had shared which is not in uh, in our script but um or the the documentary but really touched us was um they uh, was just a simple story of going to get gas um he had pulled up to a gas station and he noticed everyone was sticking these plastic cards in the in the machines in the pumps <laughs> and we'd never seen this before. Yeah. And he was so embarrassed he didn't know what people were doing that he just drove away and didn't even get the gas. And wow. it's little things like that that you don't even think about about how the world has changed. We just sort of like uh, um, accepted. Well, and when you're, that, when you're an ex-con, you're yeah. also really trying not to make waves. Like you're not looking to go ask somebody for help <laughs> to figure out how to pump gas, right? You're like, I'll just leave it and, and, you exactly. know, and walk. Yeah. Um, it's really exactly. interesting. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective to mine for, um, a project, you know, for a script, because that sort of, I don't even know what to call it, like that anachronism, I guess, right? Of like, I went into prison with flip phones and I come out of prison and, you know, there, there's, you know, the, the, the computer on your phone. Um, you know, it's, it, there's been so many accelerated changes to our lives in the last 
10 or 20, 30 years, that that's a really interesting perspective. And then if I remember correctly, they also created like a detective agency. They also went into law enforcement, didn't they? Yeah. So that was, um, also based on the, the, the real story in that, um, they were trying to figure out what to do with their lives afterwards. And it is not um, easy to be employed as a felon, uh, as an ex felon, very challenging to find a job. <laughs> exactly. Very challenging, right? Exactly. Which is why but recidivism is to... so high, right? People recidivate because they just can't find a job. And, and that's one of the problems that this country, many of the many problems this country has that leads to such high imprisonment rates. Right. So these guys are like, how do we get yeah, a job basically? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so they wanted to give back, and so they just start, started this detective agency, the three of them, um, and really helping men and women like themselves who have been wrongly accused mm -hmm. and um, needed help getting, getting uh, justice. And so they had all these interesting cases and stories, and wow. every single one of them would break your heart. Um, and they have a number of, uh, of exonerees that they've helped. And so wow. we felt like this was um, a great uh, idea for a series and um, these very yes. different kind yeah. of detectives because we are not only just um, had a case of the week where they were trying to get justice for these wrongly accused men and women, but also dealing with repairing their lives and the trauma of having been in prison for so long yeah. and having to rebuild everything. Relationships. Um, and, and so yeah. that, exactly, exactly. So um, it was a project, as I said, that was near and dear to my heart. Um, and unfortunately it did not go forward at CBS. And um, so, but it is something I'm still very proud of and, um, and you know, it's just part of the business. And but it's true though, when you say like everybody has their heartbreak story, everybody has the one that got away. I have one. It's nowhere near as impactful as the one, one you had. It was an animated uh, uh, prank show, but it, it's interesting, right? So it doesn't go forward at CBS. And tell us what the experience of that is. Did you guys think to yourselves, okay, we can't let this go. We're going to retool it. We're going to take it somewhere else. Maybe you weren't allowed to take it somewhere else. Did you like, you know, uh, have a, have a, have a, a, a smudge session and bury the script in your backyard? Like, what do you do when it doesn't go forward? Like, what's your kind of reaction in that moment? Um, I think you go through the stages of grief, honestly, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, I think that for this particular project, we entertained the idea of taking it out, um, trying to find another buyer, but the reality of it was given the Sony was a part of the documentary and therefore it was sort of a co-production between Sony and someone else. Given all the various interests, it, yeah. from a business standpoint, we were not able to move forward with it. 
And, and, you know, do you enjoy the process of developing? Um, you know, obviously lots of writers get staffed on shows. They get hired into shows as showrunners. Um, and then there's also the process of developing on an overall deal. Um, how do you kind of, when you go into an overall deal, and you've had a couple of them now, how do you kind of, um, uh, do you have like that thick notebook of ideas that you revisit and say, okay, it's time for this one? Do you, uh, you know, read the newspaper incessantly? Like what's your way of generating the, the, the project or set of projects that you really want to focus on? I think that um, most writers have that thick notebook of, of ideas or morsels of ideas that when yeah. they have the time they want to try and revisit. And I think most of us would have to live nine lives to be able <laughs> to actualize those ideas. Um, Cause there generally, there are so many, but not all of them are the best uh, for a series yeah. or will really uh, make a great fit for where we are in the world right now and that kind of thing. But um, for me, I definitely go back to those ideas. Um, and then also, because I've spent many years on staffs, you create relationships with other writers. And a lot of times they will um, bring you ideas or talk about, mm -hmm. like you'll get to talking about an idea and that'll be something that you'll want to explore with them. So I had a number of instances where writers that I had worked with previously, uh, we would meet and talk about ideas together and then come up with something. Either they would bring it to me or it's something that we would come up with together or they would bring me an idea and we spin it. Um, so there, that was one way that um, ideas come that I then try and develop and pitch and get set up. And then um, also one of the benefits of being under an overall deal is that producers seek you out and they have ideas and um, IP that books and documentaries and uh, things that they want to try and adapt and so they will reach out to you. So there's been a number of times where I could not have envisioned or I would have never sort of landed on the idea on my own, but then it is brought to you and there's some intriguing element to it that um, makes you really get on board with it. Um, and that's been exciting because like I said, it's um, usually something that you wouldn't normally on your own uh, find it. So it's really interesting, it right? Because you. you you said very early in in our conversation today that that you know it's such a collaborative uh, uh, industry uh, television, and and it is. And I think it's interesting because. <clears throat> There are people like, you know, as we talked about, Liz Craft and Seraphine, who have been writing partners for years. They knew each other from high school, right? And they've, they've continued to write together. And then there are lots of folks who don't have writing partners. And then there's sort of that in-between state that you're talking about where somebody brings you something. It's like, well, I'm going to collaborate with you on this particular pilot or this particular project, but, but maybe not beyond that. Um, is that a really, like, fruitful process for you, being able to work with another writer on a specific project as, as, as a co-writer? Or, or is it hard? Does it bring a lot of challenges as well? Probably both. Uh, yes, I, the answer is absolutely both. But 
generally speaking, I love it because I love writers and yeah. I love collaborating. Um, one of my favorite parts of the writer's pro writing process is being in a room and yeah. bouncing all ideas. And so when you're collaborating with another writer, you really get that and you get that other perspective. Um, That's really interesting. Not all partnerships make a great fit. Um, it's kind of like um, marriage and that, you know, <laughs> you come together, you have great intentions and it's, um, you feel like it could be a, a very healthy functioning relationship. And then you find out down the road that this isn't quite working. I've definitely had that as well. Um, but I overwhelmingly have felt, have had great experiences with collaborating yeah. with other writers. Um, it's, um, I really feel like uh, when it's working well, you can really bring out the best in each other. And That's that right, yeah. will lead to a really exciting and um, compelling project. It's interesting, right? I think you're right. Like certain writers are great with dialogue. Other writers are great with, you know, with, with story and structure. Other writers are great at whatever it is, right? And ideally you have a partner that compliments you and, and you guys have a lot of generosity for saying, you know, uh, I love that idea or, or, you know, you're better at that, you know, go for it or whatever it may be, right? That's probably the, 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 the fruit or that's probably the kernel that you need to be successful in a writing partnership because, um, you know, writing is hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing that it brings is this other worldview. Um, mm -hmm. When you're talking about characters and talking about situations, it's really helpful um, to have other viewpoints, um, yeah. other life experiences to really fill out and help generate ideas um, and to also really um, to strengthen your own sort of um, bias right or biases you know yeah uh, and uh, it, it's it's because we're not aware of our blind spots and yeah. and our perspectives and things like that so having another writer can really help illuminate those areas and help um, create really three-dimensional characters and things like that. Yeah, that makes total sense. How old were you, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? How old were you when you said, I want to be a writer, that's my plan, and, and then you, know, you set to work on figuring it out? Um, I was actually in seventh grade when that idea was put into my head. I had an assignment, um, and I think it was taking uh, a play and writing a, a new ending or something to that effect. Um, after turning in my paper, um, the my teacher, Mrs. Lasky, asked to speak with me, and I thought I was in trouble. And she simply said, you should do this, is what she said. Wow. And because um, I went beyond the project and 
I don't know. I, I don't know exactly. I can't remember what I did, but I went above and beyond whatever the prompt was. And she really sparked the idea of maybe I could do this. Um, and so then I was fortunate enough in high school to attend a school that had a television studio. And the Very cool. teacher there allowed me to take it um, twice. So it was by then, by high school, I was pretty determined to move to LA and be a TV writer. I never was particularly interested in being a feature writer. It was just television for me. And is that um, because you grew up on TV? But, like, what were the shows you grew up watching? Yeah, I've said this in a few interviews that the show that really made me want to do to become a writer was 30 something, which and I was not the demographic for 30 something at all. Right. Um, I was right. uh, a teenager and 30 something was about these yuppies who were deciding whether or not to have another kid and renovating their house and, and that sort of thing. But the thing that the writing was just so fantastic and made these small moments so emotional that I yeah. got it into my head that I want to do that. And then I feel like the show for me, um, uh, I was living, I'm from Detroit originally, and this idea of having problems just like about, you know, the kitchen reno never being undone was like <laughs> aspirational for me. <laughs> Yeah, I was in so, the same boat. I, so I, I was a teenager watching 30 something too, going, wow, these people have pretty good family lives. My family life is terrible, but these people have a great family life. Like their biggest issue is like, well, I mean, later in the seasons, it was infidelity and some, some more, more, uh, more urgent, bigger, bigger ticket items. But you know, uh, yeah. exactly. It was like, who's doing the dishes? You're like, okay, I can handle this, you know? <laughs> exactly. I was like, I want that life. Like, yeah, exactly. I want those <laughs> That looks pretty good. <laughs> so, so, like, will my um, advertising agency was, uh, make it? Uh, I can handle that. <laughs> I can handle that. Exactly. Handle so that. Um, are we going to get evicted? Nope. That's not on that show. <laughs> not on the list. Not on the list. Uh, so wait, you were in Detroit. You went to high school in Detroit. And by the way, you are like you are like the story for why it's important to have arts in high schools, right? Because I went to a high school, same thing. I went to a public high school outside of New York that was, you know, had the resources for me to like write plays and be in the theater. You know, we, we had like a, a theater organization and, you know, like we're able to put on plays and, you know, I, we had a newspaper and I was the editor of the newspaper. And like, that's what cultivated for me at a really young age, knowing that I wanted to go into entertainment. Right. And, and if you're not exposed to those things yeah, in, absolutely. in grade school, high school, junior high school, uh, you, you can't really know. Right. Which is why, I don't know if you saw the New Yorker article, uh, from a few months ago that, uh, that English majors are dead. The, the 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 uh choice to be an english major is down like 70 percent or something and no one's an english major anymore yeah. and uh you know everybody wants to go into yeah. something that's going to make quote quote make money right um it's it's really interesting and exactly. so you yeah. you wound up going exactly. to northwestern for college and then came out to usc um how did you sort of choose those schools like what was your process in terms of knowing what you wanted to do which was be a tv writer yeah, I um, I wanted to, as soon as I graduated from high school, 
pack my bags and head out to LA. Um, my dad, who was raising me, was like, no way. Like, that's not <laughs> happening. So I often say that. Um, he was like, North this is not Western 30 something. The- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He was, uh, the, as far as I could get, was Chicago from Detroit. Like, it, LA was not happening. Um, and so I got into Northwestern and I knew that it had a great, uh, radio television film department. So that was one of the reasons why I had applied. And, um, interestingly, my, my college counselor, public school college counselor, um, told me that the only type of students that get into Northwestern were um, one had one had worked on cancer research over the summer and won some incredible like Nobel type prize and the other was an Olympic swimmer. And so, <laughs> so they thought I should set my sights on Western Michigan or something. Oh so my God, you're like, I will listen, take up swimming if I have to. <laughs> I did not listen. I got into uh, to Northwestern awesome. and um, loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, but still was uh, dead set on getting to LA and didn't know how I was going to get there. And so um, I started working at a television station in Chicago after I graduated WTTW. It was fantastic. Did a lot of like highbrow um intellectual programming like i met hillary clinton um and and it just uh, you know they did series on our cathedrals in chicago and architecture i mean just like very very highbrow and interesting and um but i really wanted to get to la and i did not know how to do it and so i um actually applied to USC because I was like, it's in LA, it's a film school. That's, that's all I know, but I didn't have any money (laughs) (laughs) to go, um, making very little money. And so I, and this is where I feel like, um, not being young, you just, I would never do this today, but thank goodness I was like, stupid enough to do it back then. I just called well, you, have, you have nothing to lose, right? You don't have kids yet. You don't have a house yet. You know, you're, you're, you're not, you don't have the responsibilities of the 30 something cast. Uh, and you, you can just say, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Right. And that is the, that is why this yeah. industry I think is, is a youthful one because you know, it's much harder when you are a, a middle-aged or, or quote unquote older person to be able to make the, the, the sacrifices to, to, to work your way into this business. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I called the dean and I um, told her my story. I was like, look, I really want to go. I have no money. I don't know how to do this. And she was like, well, there's uh, this woman who is offering a scholarship to two women in the um, in, in the film school, the entire school. It was animation. Wow. Uh, production, producing program, the screenwriting program. She's like, you can apply. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll, I'll apply. And I applied and I got it. And so I got a full ride for, um, to USC. Wow. 
um, which was made it possible for me to, you know, load up the car and head out and uh, actually, actually try and, and get myself to LA. <laughs> well, let's talk about this because, you know, the name of our show is, is the big break. And, and, you know, uh, I think big break moments come in all kinds of forms in terms of getting into this business. You, you got that fellowship for your MFA at, at USC. And then I, I assume it was after you graduated with your MFA, you were, um, one of the, the Fox writers initiative fellows, right? You had the Fox writer initiative fellowship. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, about that. Yeah, um, one of my USC professors had said, give yourself five to eight years to really break in, even after coming from USC film school. And they were 100% right. It took every bit of that. Um, and honestly, my biggest break came from my post USC job, which was I was an assistant for Thomas Carter uh, he's a director producer who directed the pilot of Miami Vice and he had um, directed the feature Save the Last Dance. Um, and he had his hands in features and TV. And so I got a real education in how things work. Um, at the time, USC was still had a foot really in academia. And yeah. so I was writing papers on silent German cinema, uh, which was not all that helpful in getting a job. So, the use of I, montage. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to really, I feel like that's where I got my PhD and really kind of learned the business. And how did you get that job, Erica? How did you connect with Thomas? I, I think it was posted through USC. They were looking for, yeah. you know, um, I don't know assistant, um, someone that was relatively green. And I applied and I, um, on the interview, just talked about my, you know, interest and um, that sort of thing. I have, you know, I, I, I cringe to think of, you know, what I may have said in that interview or whatever, but for shining down on me and I, I got the job. And um, Tom, Thomas became a, a mentor and that he read my writing. And when the day came that I felt like I had a spec that was ready, I um, pressed upon him that I needed an agent and he made calls and he kept calling until a agent at, um, at ICM at the time it was like, I will read her just to get you from <laughs> to stop calling me. So, um, and I got signed. And from there, I, that agent, because I, I had been trying to get writer's assistant jobs, yeah. which a writer's assistant job was really um, a fantastic stepping stone to a writing career because you were actually in the writer's room and you could learn right. how things are, are done. And um, I couldn't get one of those jobs to save my life. Uh, yeah, and they're very so, hard to come by because they're a they're a, a foothold in the room, right? So those are the those are the the plum jobs, yeah. as they say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I 
was frustrated because I couldn't get a writer's assistant job. I couldn't get in the room. And so once I got my agent, um, she was able to get me a writer's assistant job on CSI New York with a guaranteed script. So I ended up writing, co-writing two scripts on CSI New York. And that sort of launched my career. So, you know, this is an instance where we have to say, okay, an agent helped you get your big break, uh, which is not always the case that, uh, that agents really do, uh, the, the, the heavy lifting in terms of like connecting you with an opportunity. But, but I I guess you would say that that is the case here, right? That she was instrumental in getting you that opportunity to have, especially with a guaranteed script, which is not always the case, right? They say, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll see. Um, but, but that was really, that was a big moment for you. Yeah, hundred um, percent. That opportunity would not have come up had it not been for the agent. So, um, the agent sent me out to meet with Anthony Zyker, who had created the CSI franchise. Um, he was going to be running CSI New York. I met him for breakfast, um, and he really was the one that um, took a chance on me and hired me yeah. to uh, be the writer. And, and he guaranteed that script. So that's awesome. And yeah. and I mean, not not it should not be lost that you did the meeting and you got yourself the opportunity. But uh, but uh, you know, the, the agent did get you uh, at the breakfast table, so to speak. Um, but but so she did. She did. did there you go, right? Uh, so did the Fox Writers Initiative happen after that? After CSI New York? Um. No, that was while I was working for Thomas Carter. Um, It it was like the, I think it might have been the second year of the Fox Writers Initiative. This is around the time that a number of the studios were were starting their um, fellowships and writers um, workshops and things like that. And so um, I was selected to be part of the Fox Writers Initiative and the one of i think the requirements at the time where you had to write you know one or two pilots that theoretically would sort of get you um hired and at least get you read by showrunners and so um there were a number of um writers who were in that group who are now you know had gone on to great writing careers and things. So it was really a intensive workshop to work on your, your spec scripts or pilots and and things like that. So um, it was helpful, but it did not, as I'm not even sure I wrote the shield in that Fox writers initiative. I think I wrote something else. So, but yeah, um, yeah, it really just, helped in getting you writing and keeping you to a schedule and things like that, because I had a day job as well. So that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, how important do you think programs like that are? And a lot of these programs are also geared toward, uh, you know, DE and I, and, and are trying to bring new voices, diverse voices into the, the quote studio system. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in some instances, there are real benefits to these programs. In other instances, I think they create some glass ceilings that are that are sort of problematic. What you know, what would you say is the benefit to um, to programs like this that sort of help you get access to a particular studio or a particular you know uh, sort of pipeline, if you will? 
I think the benefit to it um, is one, getting you to hone your craft. That mm -hmm. is huge. Two, um, it puts you in the room with other writers who are kind of in the same boat. And um, that is helpful because yeah. you can find, make alliances and kind of support one another. That's huge. But in terms of actually getting you hired, I think you touched on that it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it can get you in the room, get you your first staff writing job, but there's a certain stigma attached to it mm -hmm. um, because of systemic um, racism. There's this notion that you only were hired because you were in this diverse program and they're just trying to hit a some sort of quota or something right. and so there's a perception that you weren't hired because you're an actually great writer um yep. and so that becomes and i think that we are reckoning with some of these writer initiatives um right now in yeah. this kind of post george floyd world we're taking a look at it. and I know the WGA is is looking at it as well and we're trying to find solutions to how do we support writers and get move them up the food chain um, and uh, in, a, in an effective way and I don't think that the answers um, are there yet but it is definitely an issue that is being talked about and worked on right now. It's interesting. So I'm curious, you know, how, what, what advice would you, well, first of all, what's the best advice, career advice that you've gotten in your, in your career? What's the, what's the advice that has stayed with you and stuck with you? That's a really good question. Um, I think some of the best advice has been um, to really have a strong support system, to try and create those relationships that you can support one another through the ups and downs, because there will be a number of ups and downs in this, <laughs> um, and trying to break into the industry and trying to stay there and trying to, um, move up. Uh, it is, um, it's challenging. And so I think one of the things that has sustained me is having a group of writer friends in particular, um, women like Sarah Goldfinger, um, Michelle Tramble, just like uh, these wonderful women who have really helped me through the, um, the ups and downs uh, of my career. And, um, it's been huge. And I think the advice that I often give is that you have to just persist. Um, it's, it's in some ways it's a, uh, the, the biggest challenge is just trying to hang on. Um, if you, uh, continue to try and, um, break in or move up. Like I, I often say that the only people that I know that didn't actually make it were the ones who gave up, who didn't it's interesting. keep trying.
Right. They went to law school. <laughs> now, now, I recognize that, I mean, there are other factors. Some of them, you know, the, the, their desire for a family and, and kind of having life put on hold as they're trying to build their career was like, you know, they made that calculation and that was uh, a choice that they made and, you know, um, yeah. was the right choice for them. But I will say that for those that I sort of came up with who were trying to break in or um, continue to sort of move up, they, they absolutely did uh, eventually do that once they just hung in there and really persisted and continued to uh, keep writing. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, you know, Erica, you mentioned uh, Sarah Goldfinger and, and, you know, the female writers that you're close to. You know, people talk about the, the, the mafias from various schools, the Northwestern Mafia, the USC Mafia. They talk about uh, coming up together as assistants and looking at the assistants to your right and left and saying, these are the people that are my, my cohort, right? Um, or, or for that matter, uh, some of the, the fellowships and programs that people go through, you know, you, you meet your people that way. What, what was sort of the, the biggest source of your closest network and your closest community was it was it the people you worked with on shows was it the people you were with early in your career or or school or you know where, where did you sort of find your people it was definitely the people that um i worked with on shows um i feel like yeah. one of my mistakes was not taking advantage of usc and, and northwestern in particular as much as i probably should have and maybe that was the reason why it took me as long as it did but um <laughs> i i got the message loud and clear by the time i had um gotten onto my first show and uh really um those relationships that i made on the show were uh, really have sustained me throughout my career that's interesting yeah and i mean i think there's also some some sort of like respect that happens when you're on a show with somebody you're like wow that person's really effing talented like i want to i want to be friends with that person because you know we we can we can i can you know the, the the benefits of having somebody in your life as a friend that not only you can complain to and you know ask for help whatever but that you can be inspired by too right yeah 100% um you learn so much about someone when you are in a writer's room with them, yeah. uh, particularly pre-COVID. Um, you're spending hours upon hours talking and, sh and sharing stories. And many of them are stories about your life. And right. um, so you are, you develop a bond often. And um, that is where you can really, it's a great place to kind of find your people, so. Yeah. I want to take a snapshot of the writer's room on 30 something when they would come in and be like, oh, rough weekend. You know, I had I had to do the dishes. Uh, it was it was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The personal stories were flowing in the writer's room. And on that note, I think that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for sharing the story of your big break with us, Erica. I've known you a long time, and I feel like your career is going to be incredibly inspirational for our listeners. That's it for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Please join us for future episodes featuring production company CEOs, producers, writers, directors, and more. Our theme music for this episode was composed by Hustle Up member Lewis Robert King. Thank you so much for listening, and let's hustle up. Hustle Up.